Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. Um, this topic is on life in the Industrial Revolution, and uh, we have for a second uh, episode our guest, uh, Professor Emma Griffin, President of the Royal Historical Society, and Professor Martin, British History at Queen Mary University of London. This podcast will be based on our book, Liberty Stone, a People's History of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, to give a short introduction, I'm quoting from uh, the incipit of the book. At the dawn of the 19th century, a subtle and little-noticed social change began, to take, change began to take place in Britain. As the Industrial Revolution picked up pace, a growing number of ordinary working people picked up pen and paper and wrote down their memoirs. This book tells their story, an unexpected tale of working people carving out for themselves new levels of wealth, freedom and autonomy. Welcome, Professor Griffin. Hello. So, tell us about your your interest in this book and the, the motivation that you have. It's its actually an extraordinary book because you don't, you hear many tales uh, from people during the Industrial Revolution, but very little from workers. Well, yes, it was a real labour of love, um, Liberty's Dawn. I really, really enjoyed working on it. Um, it's based on working class autobiographies. What I hadn't really realised, I think, when I started writing the book was it's quite unusual that so many working class autobiographies exist um, for working class people in Britain. They kind of come online. There are a few all through the 18th century, but by the end of the 18th century, so they're all written by men, very few written by women. By the time you get to that generation born in about the 1780s, the 1790s, you start to get quite a large number of working class autobiographies produced. And I ended up with a collection of well over 600 that cover working life at some point between the beginning of the 18th century and the middle of the 19th century, when you might say the Industrial Revolution has, well, certainly, um, you know, it's become very evident. Um, so that was the idea behind the book. I'd known those working class, I was a historian, a social historian of Britain in the 18th and 19th century. I was looking at working class um, leisure, sports and pastimes. And in part of doing my research, I'd started to come across these working class autobiographies. So I knew they existed. Um, they weren't particularly useful for me for my um, work on the history of leisure. Um, so I didn't use them very much, but I always knew they were there. And I just wanted, I knew I wanted to come back to them at some day and start working on them. So I basically set up a course for third years. We call it a special subject um, in universities in Britain. It's a document-based course um, for third years. And I just started collecting as many of these autobiographies as I could, put on this special subject. I started working with my third year students to say, look, these sources are amazing. Um, they tell us all about life during the period of the Industrial Revolution. They're written by working class people. There's so much that's really been written 
about them by this period, but there's so little written by them. So let's look at the sources they actually produced themselves. And that's what the book is um, based on, basically. I didn't know where I was going to go when I started the book. I didn't know what I was going to argue. I didn't know what I was going to find. Um, I was quite early in my career. I never even really knew I needed to have answers to these kinds of things. I just thought they were really rich, really interesting sources. And I just wanted to read them and get a sense of what they contained. And that's um, how Liberty's Dawn came into creation. That was the um, the, the end result of working with this collection of about 600 autobiographies. Uh, excellent. So uh, one thing I'm, I'm wondering about, and you talk a little bit about this in the book, is why were there so many of these autobiographies of the working class? We have a literacy rate going from, I think, about 6%. I think this is the standard of writing your name in 1700 to um, about 50% a century later. But that's that's still far away from being able to write an autobiography. So why were, how were these people able to write the biographies and what were they, what were their objective? Right, exactly. Really interesting questions. Of course, most people, well, by the time we get to 1850, around half the population can sign their name when they get married. Um, so working people can read and write in Britain in this period. You know, there's quite a lot of reading and writing by working people, um, yeah. but nowhere near you had the newspapers, uh, you had people exactly. reading Dickens, yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's, it is a literate, a semi-literate society, um, but nowhere near mass literacy. So this is quite interesting that you've got these working class autobiographies coming on before mass literacy. Mass literacy in Britain is a, is a kind of a product of the 20th century, really, not of the 19th century. And these autobiographies come on stream in the 19th century. So that is quite interesting. Um, so everybody, I mean, one of the things people do when they write their autobiographies, they always tell us how it is that they are able to read, or very often they tell us how it is that they are able to write an autobiography because it, it's not obvious. Um, and there are lots of different stories as to how people learn to read and write. I mean, some people learn to read and write because they have a little bit of schooling in their early childhood, and that is enough to help some people write a fairly basic autobiography. But the other thing that is very apparent, and I think it ties into the fact that these are all being written during the period of the Industrial Revolution, is there's also a lot of adult education that's becoming available um, in the 19th century. I mean, Britain's become a very urban society by the 19th century. There's lots of adult education that's available in the cities. And a lot of the men who end up writing their autobiography do so, not because they learned to read and write as a small child, but because as a teenager, very often, or very often, they decide they would like to improve their reading and writing. So they join a night school or a reading club or a book club, or they find a man in their um, company who will help them with their letters or some other form of adult education that they get involved in, um, in their teens or in their early 20s. And that's really where they're gaining their um, literacy from. So, I mean, I think the other thing that's worth saying is, um, it certainly makes you slightly unusual if you are a man who is able to write an autobiography in complete sentences um, and to structure a narrative from beginning to end. That makes you quite unusual in this period. So one does have to treat the sources with quite a lot of care, because by the time you've acquired those literary skills, you've often become slightly different to many of your neighbours and many of your peers who won't have acquired those skills. But I think that's something that we can read sensitively around. Um, we just need to be kind of careful not to generalise um, sometimes from um, stories that are actually quite unusual. All right. I'm quoting from your book. Um, 
It's time to think the unthinkable, that these writers view themselves not as downtrodden losers, but as men and women in control of their destiny, that the Industrial Revolution herald, heralded the advent, not of a yet darker period, but of the dawn of liberty. Why is this unthinkable? Right. Well, exactly. So, I mean, it was it was unthinkable for me when I wrote the book, when I started writing the book, because when I was teaching this special subject to students and when we were working through all the topics, we would think about things like uh, working patterns, uh, marriage patterns, schooling, education. Uh, we would cover lots of topics in working class life. And what we tended to find over and over was that historians were saying everything was getting much worse in this period because of the Industrial Revolution. There's a really strong and powerful narrative around the Industrial Revolution in Britain. And the, the, the story goes something like this. The Industrial Revolution in the due course of time has helped everybody to grow richer in Britain, but it has also was very enriching for the bourgeoisie and for the middle classes and for the upper classes, but for working class people themselves who lived during the Industrial Revolution, it was a very difficult time. Their wages were low, very often historians have argued their wages were decreasing, and there's a lot of writing around how their quality of life was becoming um, worse because they were living in cities, they were having to work in machines and working in a factory is much worse than working in agriculture, which is pure and simple and nice and everybody's happy. Um, and the city is dark and dismal, the factory is miserable and everything was getting worse. They didn't even earn very much money. So there's a, been a massive amount of writing, partly by Victorian commentators themselves, but mostly by historians and mostly through the 20th century saying that the Industrial Revolution was a very difficult time for um, the workers themselves. So when I started to read these autobiographies, that is what I expected to find. I expected to find lots of writers saying how their life was worse and how it was much harder than it had been before and how it was getting worse and things were worse for them than for their parents and just how difficult and hard it was. And it was very hard because actually, as you read, read these autobiographies, that just was not the story that they were telling. It was not the things that writers were saying. They tended to say uh, really quite the reverse, um, that they had left the countryside, which had been boring and dismal. And the wages had been really low. They left the country, they moved to the city, and that's where their life began, basically. And that the city was a place of opportunity and the factory, which has been so maligned in our historical imagination, the factory is very often a place of high wages and a place of opportunity as well. So it was very difficult to write the book. It was very difficult to get rid of all of those um, voices in your ear telling you that you must be finding all the bad things and very difficult to adapt and to really kind of recognise what it is that the sources were saying, what they were telling me, which was just obviously a very different story indeed. Yeah, I, I think one compared to the bucolic bliss of poor people in the countryside, of course. But one thing that interests me is we talked uh, in the last episode, in the first episode, about uh, the, the, the optimism, the, the almost deification of progress. On the one hand, on the other hand, you have Dickens talking about Coke time and hard, uh, Coke town in hard times. I think it's Manchester or it's supposed to be Manchester. Uh, a town full of filth, ruin and uninhabitableness. You have Friedrich Engels talking about the old town of Manchester, the frightful condition of this hell on earth. Uh, everything here arouses horror and indignation, and you dwell a bit on angles. 
And you have in 1849, as uh, working class wages were, were really starting to go up, you have Angus Reach, a journalist who visited Angle Meadow, and Angel Meadow, I think this is in Manchester, the lowest, most, most filthy and most unearthly and most wicked locality in Manchester is called, singularly enough, Angel Meadow, full of cellars inhabited by prostitute bullies. So explain to us why, why you could have this enthusiasm on the one hand and at the same time uh, com contemporary commenters and also today, as you know, uh, are this extremely pessimistic. And also, of course, you have a lot of disease. Uh, I mean, these descriptions are true. So how yeah. can they coexist? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So I think a lot of the answer is, you know, I think you're right to say they coexist. That's the word, isn't it? So you've basically got a very large, really quite large number of mostly middle class commentators who don't work in the factories themselves, who don't know what it's like to be hungry or to skip a meal or to have children who can't afford any shoes. They are middle class commentators who are looking at the changes in the world around them. And what do they see? They see uh, factories uh, appearing, smoke billowing out of them, huge cities with massive populations of poor, uh, malnourished, it seems to them, massive you know, mobs living around them. It all looks very bad. It's creating pollution, it's creating overpopulation, it's creating dirt, it's creating a degree of chaos. It looks very difficult for them. Now, that is true. It is true that the cities are, you know, they're, they're not lying. It's not like Manchester wasn't created or that there were no factories. There were factories um, and they do pollute and there is this kind of overcrowding and these population problems. So it's, it's all a true story that they're saying. I suppose what's very different is what that looks like from the inside if you were a working person themselves. And what we've really got is accounts written by people who are witnessing the growth of the cities and the people who are working for a living and that those perspectives are just very different and I mean I got quite a lot of pushback for saying working class people viewed the um, industrial revolution positively when I published the book um, and uh, very often people were slightly mischaracterizing what I was saying and that I was saying that everybody thought it was much better and that industrialization was great and it was wonderful everybody loved it that's not what I'm saying at all I've never argued that um living in these cities was really really difficult but there's a big missing part of the picture and that's what life was like if you lived in the countryside that's what nobody ever wanted to talk about and all I'm really trying to argue in Liberty Store is to say well the you know the choices that were on offer um were life in the countryside or life in the city and the great majority of people uh, of working people viewed the life in the city as preferable to the life in the countryside and that's because life in the countryside was really really hard in ways that simply haven't been acknowledged so you've been mentioning Engels I mean Engels provides these most uh, romantic fanciful descriptions of what life was like in the English countryside he's describing everybody owning their own little plot of land owning their 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 loom and their spinning wheel and the children play out in the garden and sometimes they're growing crops and vegetables and sometimes they're doing a bit of work on the loom. They keep what hours they like. They're healthy. They've got as much food as they want because they've, they've got this garden. Their wages are good. It's the sweet life. It's complete nonsense. It was not at all like that living in Britain um, before the Industrial Revolution. If you lived in the countryside, you very rarely owned your own plot of land. You usually had to work for somebody else. So you had a job in agriculture. 
working in agriculture is extraordinarily difficult. The hours were very, very long. The work is very, very heavy. You're outdoors in all weathers. Um, you don't have suitable clothing. You only get paid when you work. So if you don't, uh, if it's raining, for example, for several days in a row, you don't earn any money. I mean, living standards were really, really bad and really, really hard. And by contrast with that, work in the factory was very, very, very favourable. You have a regular wage. Um, you, you know, you get paid every day of the week and it doesn't matter if it's sunny or if it's raining. You get paid every single day. Um, so you have a much higher income. You get paid a better wage in the first instance. The work is steady. So you earn much more over the year. There's lots of work for your children in the factories. I'm not saying that factory work is good, but from the perspective of a working class family, um, actually, it was very positive to be able to put your children to, to, to work. And these households can earn much higher wages. And that means they eat much better. One of the most striking things about people, uh, working people living in the countryside is that they were mostly hungry. Um, and that's a, another another slant on why moving to the city was viewed so positively. Yeah, you, you also saw a rise in, in life expectancy, right? And this was before medicine had, I think someone, someone said it was about 1920 that um, visiting a doctor was more likely to help you than to hurt you. And this mm. was mostly nutrition. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. A lot of it is nutrition. I mean, I, 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 I do also want to be very clear um, and to say that the growth of the fact, one of the things that came with the growth of the factory was more work. If you were an adult man or a woman, because women can work in the factories as well, that is actually quite advantageous. You earn more money and you also have more. I mean, nobody really likes being a servant. If you, you could be a servant in a house or if you worked in agriculture, you were still a kind of servant where you just have to do whatever your master tells you whenever they ask you to tell it, then you have to uh, curtsy as you do it. And most people don't really enjoy this very much. So people tend to like the freedom or autonomy that goes with being a worker in a factory. You can do what you like. You don't have to agree with your um, employer's views. You go home at the end of the day, do whatever you like, and you just earn better wages. And, and working people are very, very, very grateful for the, for the higher wages. The flip side is there's lots of work and there's lots of work for children and you have an influx of children into the workforce that you don't have in agriculture. You didn't not have children working in agriculture because everybody in the countryside thought, oh, that would be wrong to have children at work. Oh no, they were quite happy with children working. There just was no work for them to do. Um, there is work in the, the factories. And I think actually that's very pernicious for children to be working um, hard. I think that's, um, you know, it's not good on a child's development in any way whatsoever. So I think that was a real downside um, of the industrialization, the flow of children into the into the workforce. But for those children who make their way through and become adults, there are real um, advantages to, uh, the, to to the kind of the new world. Yeah, I think one of the stories that fascinated me was uh, the one of I think it was William Dodd. Uh, he talks about his life at six, uninterrupted, unmitigated suffering, and by early adulthood, he was a, a miserable cripple. But at the end of the day, he's telling a, a positive story in spite of all this. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more. You have a chapter on, on men at work um, and the nature of work, how it changed around 1790. Maybe you could give us uh, an anecdote or two about what it was like. Yeah. And you, you, and, also, your, your name is Liberty Stone, so I think one of the main points here is that all of a sudden people, people could, people had much wider range of choices than they did before. Exactly, exactly. And again, a lot of this, um, this is not to say that it was peaches and cream in the Victorian city. It was really, really hard. 
But really, the point is to say that it was much worse in the countryside than historians want to admit. There's so much romanticisation of life in the countryside. It was dirty, drudgery, very little culture available for people, no opportunities for self-improvement and for companionship. Uh, so, you know, just lots of lots of disadvantages to people. So what do we see um, with the men? So um, the, the it's mostly the men that are writing the autobiographies. So it is very a male dominate. It's a very male dominated story. I'm very happy to say a bit more about what I think is happening with women as well um, later. Um, their life tends to start in a difficult way. Being a child at any point in the 18th or early 19th century in a working class family tends to be quite difficult. Um, there is a risk of hunger. There's very little food. Um, if there's not, you know, if you're, it's never clear whether it's lucky or unlucky. I mean, you might be able to find a job. And if you find a job as a child, your chances of eating will be definitely improved. But the work itself might be quite difficult. So life is quite difficult. But what happens, they, they, they start working um, by the age of 10, 12, certainly by teenage years, they're working. And if they're working in something like a factory or some kind of semi-skilled occupation, they can move up through the ranks really quite quickly. What's also very apparent in England is the guilds um, and the apprenticeship system is breaking down and is much more easy to access than it had been previously. So the traditional apprenticeship model is your parents, if they can afford, um, pay a premium for you to go and learn a trade such as tailoring or shoemaking or um, carpentry or whatever it might be. Um, and then you go and work for six or seven years um, initially for no pay, but for your food and lodging. And towards the end, you might be getting a little bit of pay. Um, and then you become a skilled worker at the end. Most, I mean, the beauty of the apprenticeship system is very much in the eye of the beholder. If your parents could afford to uh, put you into apprenticeship, it was quite advantageous for you. The hallmark of being poor, obviously, is that very often your parents cannot afford to put you into an apprenticeship system. Um, and when we see the breakdown of the apprenticeship system in Britain at this time, we see people from increasingly poorer backgrounds who, by some means or another, learn how to make a shoe, to make a cabinet, um, to plane a piece of wood, um, to make nails or whatever it is outside the apprenticeship system. For them, this is actually really quite advantageous because it opens up the door to quite well paid work for them um, in adulthood. So for all sorts of reasons, um, the kind of the general chaos and breakdown of traditional structures that goes with industrialization provides opportunities for working men. It might be the work in a factory or it might be that they can become a, a so-called skilled worker through informal means. The real hallmark of all of this, though, Anders, is that you earn higher wages. And wages had just been so low in the countryside that people lacked any kind of freedom or agency. You just had no money left over. You just had enough to keep body and soul together. And there was nothing left over. And, and what you see over and over is these men can now earn more. They can have hobbies. They can get involved in politics. They can learn to read. They can go to the theatre. They can buy additional clothing if that's the thing that they're into. They can get married younger. They can do all sorts of opportunities. And it really comes down to having a bit of money in their pocket or a lot of it comes down to having a bit more money in their pocket. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 with time, this this wage increases, especially after 1840. And there's also wave after wave of social legislation now the british state was not very interventionist of course you have the cornwalls and the protectionism uh, but working life is getting better relatively quickly yeah i mean there's uh, that is not the case for everybody because it, obviously we're imagining the man who's able to go out to work um he needs to be healthy 
um, and he yeah he needs to be able to go out to work. If you there's no safety net in this period, so if you cannot work, um, and this is even more true if you've got a father, you know, for the children, if you've got a father who can't work or a husband who can't work, there's no safety net. So it is still a very very brutal society and a very very hard society. But if we just look at it in comparative context, compared to what it was like in the countryside, compared to what it had been like 50 years earlier, there are more opportunities. And what you will notice is working men grabbing these opportunities with great enthusiasm and really enjoying them. And you never see anybody say, yeah, I didn't like the high wages in the factory because the, the factory was so smoky. So I gave up the high wages and they went back and lived in my clean, pleasant village because that had been so nice. No, nobody ever does that. But over and over, you have narratives where people start off life in the countryside, they end up in the city and they stay there. All right. So let, let's talk a bit about the, the the artisans. So this was the age of the rise, rise of the artisan. Uh, we're going to have Joel McKeer on the program who uh, talks quite a bit about uh, the Industrial Revolution and the great enrichment being driven by not only an elite of, of, uh, of engineers and, and later scientists, but especially the, the mid-level skills. Now, um, what I found a bit interesting is that you talk about the statute of artificers, who was the, the which was the artisan system. Um, of course, the guild system <coughs> survived quite a bit, which was abolished in 1814, which then gave rise to um, a much more a freer system of, of apprenticeship. Did I get that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. All right. So why why did this why did this happen? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot that's going on. Um, I think what we see in Britain is um, the economy is growing, the population is growing really quickly. The economy is growing really quickly. You've got these towns growing really quickly. The old traditional forms of governance where you kept everybody in their place can't really cope with the rapidity of the change. You've got old structures that were there that worked when everything stayed the same and the population stayed the same and nothing changed very much. Because you've got so much change, so much growth, so much population movement, your old governance structures are really starting to break down. And as I say, that actually, you know, there are there are clearly negatives to the breakdown of governance structures and a kind of lawlessness. But from the perspective of a fit, healthy man um, with a bit of ambition, there are lots of advantages basically to the breakdown of those systems. And, and that's what we see over and over, that they see these opportunities. They don't even really realise what they're doing, but they're just like, well, yes, this man said he would train me to be a shoemaker. So I paid him two shillings a week and that's what we did. And it only lasted a year. And then after that, I could set up as a shoemaker. Nobody can control who has now been apprenticed in a place like Manchester. Those systems of control have completely break, broken down. Um, so I think it's to do with, you know, it is the period of the Industrial Revolution, really. It's to do with that kind of rapid and rather unrestrained growth that's occurring in the background. And and it goes even further than, than apprenticeships, right? Because you, you talk in the book about uh, most cities hosting a lively improvement scene. You talk about the rise of the mechanics movement. People were talking to each other, uh, exchanging ideas. And this was a big change, right? Absolutely. It goes way beyond um, those. This is the point about the apprenticeships. Definitely. Um, you have a whole kind of working man's culture that's emerging in the cities. And um, you have lots of opportunities for improvement in the workplace. That's one other thing that I think that's really interesting to point out about the Victorian, um, the male worker in the Victorian period. 
you don't have any emphasis on um, schooling. Schooling isn't even compulsory for most of the 19th century. Not until the kind of the 1870s does it become compulsory to send your child to school. So there's no kind of um, the university is completely off the scale of understanding. What? You know, how do you become a skilled worker in the Victorian period? You get your first job. You prove to be quite good at it and you rise up through the ranks in the in the organization in the firm you don't need to have exams or schooling or anything like that to get you ahead you just need to be quite good at the job that you do so you see a lot of improvement in the workplace um, but you also have these kind of bigger bigger institutions that are setting up in the city so things like mechanics clubs reading clubs libraries um, all sorts of things being set up so that men have the opportunity to mix with other men night schools are being created so if you've got a job um, and you need to slightly improve your skills you might go along to the night school and you can learn more about um, draftsmanship or something something that will help you get ahead in your job or learn something about electricity if that's where your industry is going so just lots of opportunities basically and a real associational culture that you get in the city so um, there's something about city growth in this period as well that seems to be very beneficial for some of the men who want to participate in it i would say again of course the autobiographies you get a slightly skewed story because they are written by the people who do want to be involved in this culture so the culture emerges very positively in the autobiographies um needless to say there will have been millions of men who were not involved in this culture in any way but um that that's part of our story definitely yeah and you had um there was very little licensing at the time, right? You to be an engineer or to be a lawyer, maybe even a doctor. You didn't need you, exactly. you didn't need much. You just needed to claim that you can do something. Exactly. So you also saw the rise of the engineer and the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur. We talked uh, last time about uh, some of the famous engineers coming from very humble beginnings. Did they emerge from this movement, the mechanics movement, and similar? Yeah, that's very interesting because we were talking um, last time about how so many of the big inventors um, come from really quite humble backgrounds. A lot of that actually is earlier than the mechanics clubs, the mechanics institutions. Um, so I don't think actually that these new forms of education that are being av made available to working men in the 19th century are a very big part of the story of invention. As I say, most of that is just earlier. It goes back to the middle of the 18th century before may, this. May they, yeah, they, are, they are the ones and the glorification of them are maybe a motivation for this kind of movement. Exactly. Well, I think we, what I think these movements do and where they are really important is not so much in, in pushing forward technological change, which is just happening anyway. What these movements are very good at is giving men a sense of... Um, pride, a sense of community, um, is very good at teaching them public speaking. And one of the things that we get emerging out of these movements is not actually invention, it's politics. I think they are the they are the seedbed for working class politics, particularly the Chartist movement. Um, but Chartist movement is just one part of working class politics, basically. There's much more engagement by ordinary working men in a wide range of political movements. And I think this associational culture that is created in the 19th century really helps to train them up, to give them skills, to understand how meetings work, how minutes are taken in the meeting, how you talk in meetings, building up your confidence. You'll have, you'll have some of these autobiographers describing how the first time they had to speak into a meeting, they were really terrified. But as they kept doing it, they learned how to find their voice. And little by little, they ceased to be somebody who just is speaking in the meeting 
they become the person who is driving the meeting and maybe is pushing forward things on the agenda. So you start to get a kind of active political movement. And I think for me, that's where those educational movements are significant, not so much for the um, invention. It's probably a bit of if you looked hard enough, you probably would find it. But what you tend to find is your chartists and your politicians, your union leaders, um, they're all kind of growing out of this culture. And I think it's a really important part of our story of the Industrial Revolution. We tend to think, oh, yeah, because a lot of what these workers said was that, you know, they're complaining, they're trying to change the world, they're trying to bring in new legislation. So historians have often read that quite naively and said, oh, God, yeah, look, it was really hard for workers. Look at what they're saying. And yes, they are saying it's dreadful. But the fact that working class men are now have now got a voice and they're now saying anything and we've now got records that were created by them that we can look at. That is actually historically significant because in the 18th century, we don't have those kinds of records for working class people because they just didn't have any means of coming together and agitating in their own interests. It's a really big part of our story of industrialization, I think. Although they weren't enfranchised yet. At the no. Time, right? They are not enfranchised. Um, they are agitating for the vote um, in the 1830s, the 1820s, well, all through the early 19th century, really, but particularly with the Chartist movement in the 1840s. They don't get the vote at that time, but they start getting um, the vote in the 1870s. Um, and they do start to affect, I mean, you can also start to affect power in your local community. You can, you can sometimes have power without having the vote. So you might, for example, um, have power by... Um, forming a union in your workplace. So I think there's a slow story of working class people starting to get some power for themselves, of which they've had very, very little historically. Um, and that culminates in a series of legislation around the vote in the late 19th century. Um, but I think that's just one small part of, of working class politics. I'd say there's much more to politics in the 19th century than just suffrage and the vote. And I think in general it was uh pretty politicized environment. You have the rise of the press, um, what we would now call the yellow press, the sun in the UK, you still have the legacy. Um, that's where Dickens published his uh, his serials. Uh, it was widely read. Uh, that's that's one point that fascinates me. The, the other one is that I think a lot of this political engagement was effective. There was quite a bit of social legislation um, that came about at the time. Is that correct? Yes, I think, I mean, I think, I mean, it, it doesn't all, I mean, the Chartists are a good example. They don't get their immediate goal there and then in the 1840s. They don't get the vote right there, but they really change the political landscape. They change the discourse. So a couple of decades later, they do start to get some of their demands met. And yes, you can have, uh, you, there are improvements to conditions for working men in Parliament. Again, not because they're voting for them themselves, but because they're starting to become a bit of a force to be reckoned with to the point that men in Parliament decide that they will pass legislation um, that they're asking for because they fear basically what might happen because these working class people are starting to be much better organised. So there's a soft push on power outside the vote as well. And there's a there's a much clearer articulation of what they want. And there are some gains. I mean, there are lots of things they don't win, but there start to be some gains for them. Yeah. And of course, at the same time, the economy is growing, there's more innovation and capital accumulation. So there's much more room for um, shortening working hours and improving uh, improving working conditions as well. 
Yes, absolutely. And of course, that's some of the first, the early areas where um, working class people are particularly agitating around the employment of children. There are restrictions on the use of children and a length, a shortening of the working day to 10 hours. Um, so, yes, there are, yes, there are quite a few bits of um, effective um, organisation that are happening kind of yeah, in the first half of the 19th century, really, around working conditions. And as you say, with a genuinely, you know, a genuine society and economy that's generally getting richer, there's a little bit more wiggle room and a little bit more, um, uh, more of a willingness to accommodate some of these demands than there might have been otherwise. Yeah. Uh, so we're almost out of time. So um, do you have any other topics that you want to mention that we didn't cover? Yes, what I will say um, is something about um, the women, if that's okay. Of course. Um, we, it's very hard to tell a story about what's happening to women during the Industrial Revolution because they don't write any autobiographies. And I think actually that's really significant. I think it's significant that men are writing autobiographies now, regardless of what they say. The sheer fact that a man who is born into complete and utter poverty can end up writing an autobiography tells us something about that society and the opportunities that are available to men. Women are actually just as capable of writing their name at marriage as men are, or almost as much, not much difference in literacy, but they never write autobiographies. And I think that's a big story about their position in our in, in the culture at this time as well, that they have a much lower status in society. They can learn to read and write, but they can't write autobiographies because they don't have that kind of confidence and they don't feel they've got that story to tell. Um, and they are not part of these associational networks that I've been talking about where confidence and skills are brought up. There's one thing I would say about women. The other thing I would say about women is obviously women can work in the factories. There's quite a lot of opportunities for work. But what we see during the whole of the Industrial Revolution period, well into the 20th century, is that it's almost impossible to combine work with motherhood. There's the normal thing for human beings, not everybody, but, you know, we tend to mate, we tend to get together, we tend to have children. It's the normal thing for, for, for much of the population, just as it is across the animal kingdom to reproduce. And when women do that in our period, they tend to retreat from the work uh, from the workplace because it's just very, very difficult to combine raising they had, a large family. Yeah, they had, they had many children, right? This large was families. The time of disease, high child mortality, you exactly. needed quite a bit large families, no running water, no electricity, everything is done on an open fire. There's a massive amount, all food cooked from scratch, um, a massive amount of labour in running home. So women no, can't really no, combine that. Yeah. No video games to keep your children occupied. <laughs> no video games, no hoover, you name it. It's not there. You, it's all really hard. I mean, it's horribly hard. It's horrible to even think about it. So they don't tend to work. So one other part of our story is that women tend to be much more dependent on men's wages. Um, women remain very dependent on men's wages if they've got married, if they've had a family, which most have, not all of them, but if, if they have, um, they're going to be very dependent on a man's wage. And this is one other little part of the story that I will just throw in before we finish. And that is, that strangely enough, when men's wages increase, you would expect that would improve the living standards of the family. And that's what I expected when I first started looking at all of this. Oh, look, men's wages are going up. Families will be wealthier. That's true for many men, because what they want to do is bring their wage and give it to their wife. It happens a lot, but it doesn't happen all the time. One other scenario that happens a lot is that when men get richer, they have more hobbies. They spend more on themselves. One of the things they particularly like to spend their money on at this time 
is alcohol because it's very cheap. It's very widely available. There's no legislation. Men's lives are very, very hard. Um, alcohol makes you feel better for a while. Um, so actually, when you look at the family perspective, an increase in male wages can be much more complicated. Sometimes that wage is brought back to the family and the whole family benefits. And the other thing you find is when families are very, very poor, as they are in the countryside, men tend to bring their whole wage back because there's nothing else they can do. They can't have a hot meal unless they give the money to their wife who will turn it into meals for them. But in the city, a man has other options. He can go to a shop, he can cafe, he can go to the pub. I mean, he doesn't need to give his wages to the wife in the same way as the very poor agricultural worker does. So the, the story is very, very complicated. The story as to what happens to families and what happens to women during the Industrial Revolution is much more complicated. And I suppose that would be one other thing I would say about the Industrial Revolution is it just makes much, much more complex societies. Agricultural societies tend to be more simple and lots of people have the same experience of having no money and a nuclear family that bonds together and ties together very tightly to keep body and soul together. But when you have cities and you have industrialization and you have millions of different jobs that men can uh, do with different grades, then it becomes much, much harder to to, 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 to generalise about people's experience. It's also just, it just creates a much more complex society. Um, and women's ability to initially share in those gains is much, much more fragile than it is for men. Yeah, the, this is another contradiction. And we talked about several contradictions, but yeah, you have Queen Victoria, uh, you have in literature, it feels like a third or maybe even half of uh, the outstanding writers from, from the period were women. Uh, women, or at least upper class women or bourgeoisie women, had a pretty strong role in, in politics and many of the social movements that we talked about. Uh, at the same time, conservative gender roles prevail uh, among, mm. among working class women, at least mostly. Absolutely. Very, very conservative models prevail well into the 20th century, actually. Yeah, very, very hard for women to break out of the model until they can until they can limit their fertility, basically. So it takes us well into the 20th century where you can control your family size. But until then, yeah, very conservative models. And I think that's true across Europe as well. Um, it's, it's very standard picture. All right. We'll have to end at that note. On that note, um, Professor Griffin, it's been a pleasure having you. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks ever so much for the invite. Thank you. Thank you.